0: Welcome once again to the Radio Gaga Podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today's episode is all about the 1996 Wallflowers album, Bringing Down the Horse. bringing down the horse for today's episode is because a few weeks ago i listened to this album top to bottom for the first time in a really long time like years and it shocked me how little i remembered about it of course singles like one headlight and three marlenas triggered the sights and sounds of my older childhood summers day camp pool parties etc bringing down the horse came out in 1996 but i picked it up in the early 2000s in late grade school When I bought it, I bought it for the singles. This was before we could just buy or stream single songs, remember that time? But when I brought the CD home, I remember just kind of ignoring the other songs on it that weren't singles. Bringing Down the Horse is actually not unlike Cracked Rear View by Hootie and the Blowfish, an album that came out really early on in the band's career that did exceptionally well and had a lot of singles, but perhaps at the expense of the rest of the album. So today, we're going to dig into every song, an exercise I probably should have done a lot earlier than this. After giving Bringing Down the Horse many, many listens over the past few weeks and diving deep into each song, I definitely think there are more hits than misses. I'll share my thoughts on that when I get to the track-by-track discussion. But what I found particularly interesting in my research about The Wallflowers was the members of this band, including Jacob Dylan. The only thing I really knew about him before researching this episode was that he is Bob Dylan's son, and beside that, I knew nothing about him or the other members of the band. But The Wallflower's history goes to show you how difficult the music industry can be, both to break into and stay inside of, even for the pros. As music fans, we might take music for granted too often, writing off entire albums or not listening to songs that aren't singles or whatever. Sometimes I find myself saying, yeah, that song's just okay, or that album sucks, or this is their best work, or whatever other offhand comments I might have the first time I listen to a piece of music. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know I of course love diving deeper into albums and knowing the story behind the music, and I usually like it better after I do that, and after multiple listens. But certainly there are artists that I don't do that with. I've taken music for granted before, for sure. And beside playing with my own band in dingy bars with drunken barflies screaming freebird at me, I haven't ever seen the other side of what really goes into playing music for a living. Not a lot of us have. We don't see the sweat that goes into it. We don't see the songwriters pouring over their notebooks in the middle of the night. We don't see the band missing their families on tour, or the record label breathing down their necks to make music when maybe inspiration isn't striking. Like, imagine someone was just breathing down Vincent Van Gogh's neck, standing behind his canvas, staring at him as he painted, just being like, dude, this better be good or we're all out of a job. Also, we need this tomorrow. Also, you have to sleep on a bus again tonight. That's what it can feel like for musicians. Though bringing down the horse went quadruple platinum, the Wallflowers didn't have it easy before that, and they didn't have it easy after. And while Bringing Down the Horse might not be my favorite album ever made, I have a newfound respect for The Wallflower's Hustle, and I'm excited to talk about this band today. By the mid-1960s, folk singer-songwriter Bob Dylan's career was taking off. He had released at least one new album every year since 1962, and people were really starting to take hold. 1965's Bringing It All Back Home broke into the top ten shortly before Dylan turned 24. John is in a basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement, thinking about the government. A man in a trench coat, lead all- 1965 and 66 were huge years for Bob Dylan. In the span of just 15 months, Dylan managed to record some of the most influential albums in existence today, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde. These were two huge years in his personal life, too. 1965 was the year he married Sarah Lowndes. She already had one daughter, Maria, then in 66, their son Jesse Dylan was born. 66 was also the famous motorcycle crash that sidelined Dylan but it did give him some time at home with his growing family. In 1967 came Anna, in 68 came Sam, and in 1969 Dylan and Sarah's youngest, Jacob, was born. They spent the earliest years of their new family unit in Greenwich Village, but moved out to L.A. when Jacob was still. Jacob told Rolling Stone's David Frick in 2000 that despite his father's massive success, they didn't have gold records hanging all over the house. He says, quote, I would go to friends' houses and see their parents splash any kind of hype they had right in the front entryway. We never had that stuff. It was understood that I wasn't supposed to be in awe of it, end quote. And that's one of the reasons Jacob Dylan was hesitant to become too famous, The way he was raised had certainly helped him grow up to be pretty normal given the circumstances, but it also meant Jacob innately felt awkward in his own success. Jacob played in a few bands in high school and even tried his hand at songwriting. But when he graduated, he did a complete 180 and moved back out to New York to study art at Parsons School of Design. Somewhat predictably, he dropped out his first semester and moved back to LA to pursue music. I see why he took this detour, though. Imagine having the trajectory of your whole life basically laid out for you when you were a kid. You're going to be a musician following in your father's footsteps. Your music is probably going to sound similar to his, but you'll never live up. Yeah, I'd want to go study something like art too, just to differentiate myself. Just to see if I was good at anything else. But Jacob knew in his heart that he was meant to play music. And he'd need to very intentionally make his own way.
1: See me by the roadside Well this heart is on wheels tonight Straight through the ghettos and without lights Now every heart has a blind side
0: When the Wallflower started to hit it big in the 90s, the personal questions came in droves. How does it feel to carry on his legacy? How have you been inspired by your father's music? Tell us about how Bob Dylan is as a dad. Is he affectionate? Think about that for a second. Journalists and fans ask musicians all the time who inspires them. But imagine how much more personal that question gets when it's your dad. What if what you say isn't what the people want to hear? For that reason, for the longest time, Jacob very rarely would talk about his dad. Whenever he was asked about Bob Dylan in interviews, he would never say Bob or my dad or my father, only referencing him in third person as he or him. Dylan's refusal to talk about his dad was for a long time interpreted as a contentious father-son relationship. But in reality, Jacob very much loves and admires his dad and his music, and they have a good relationship. One reason Jacob never talked about his dad was that he was trying to protect his privacy. In a 2005 interview with the New York Times, Jacob said, quote, If people want to talk about Bob Dylan, I can talk about that. But my dad belongs to me and four other people exclusively. I'm very protective of that, end quote. Bob Dylan to this day remains somewhat of a mystery, and his child actively guarding that with both of them in the limelight just completely impresses me. The second reason Jacob didn't talk about his dad much was that he wanted to know he could make it in the music business on his own merit. He wasn't going to walk into a record studio, say, hey, Bob Dylan's my dad, sign me. No, he wanted the same ups and downs and successes and projections that any other artist has, regardless of his lineage. His father was literally the voice of a generation, one of the most famous musicians to ever live. And instead of riding the coattails of that, which he easily could have done, Every move Jacob Dylan made as a musician was in avoidance of association. Not out of embarrassment or disdain for the legacy his father carved out, but out of respect for an important relationship and a silent confidence that he'd make it on his own. And when he got back to LA, Jacob Dylan set out to prove just that. 1989, Jacob met back up in L.A. with one of his old bandmates, Toby Miller, to form the band, The Apples. The two of them recruited bassist Barry McGuire, drummer Peter Yanowitz, and keyboardist Rami Jaffe to fill out the remaining spots in their new band. They changed their name to The Wallflowers, started playing clubs around L.A., and in 1991 were signed by Virgin Records. Side note, Bob Dylan didn't hear any of the Wallflower's music until they had completed their first record, and he didn't make any suggestions whatsoever, except for one. When they were trying to come up with a band name, Dylan, supportive dad that he was, suggested they call themselves King Neptune and the Slave Drivers. So there's a goofy and kind of uncouth band name idea if you're deep into Bob Dylan fandom. I'm glad they didn't call themselves that. Wacky dad jokes aside, there are two known definitions of a wallflower. The first is an actual flower, a fragrant perennial that grows in a ton of bright colors. The more informal definition is an introverted person who attends parties and social gatherings, but actively stays out of the action and avoids having any attention drawn to them. Knowing the way Jacob Dylan grew up, and how he shies away from success and rock stardom and being in the limelight, I completely get this band name now. He himself is the epitome of a wallflower, even still today. He's at the party, but he's not dancing in the middle. He's doing what he loves in the music industry, but he's not in the tabloids. Honestly, it's really smart, and this strategy basically guarantees longevity doing what you love and checks still coming in without unflattering beach photos adorning magazine covers and paparazzi following you to the grocery store. It's the only possible way I'd ever want to be famous. I'd want to be wallflower famous. So, Jacob Dylan and the Wallflowers are signed to Virgin, and they start recording their debut album in 1991, self titled The Wallflowers. Too, this first album did not do well at all. It's reported that only about 40,000 copies sold. Knowing they needed to make up for low sales, the band began touring around the country, opening for 10,000 Maniacs and the Spin Doctors. When they got back from a 1993 tour, they learned that the management at Virgin had changed and the guys who originally signed them to the label were no longer with the company. The new executive team at Virgin was not at all pleased with their album sales. And honestly, the band wasn't that psyched about staying on with Virgin anyway. So they asked to be dropped from the label, and Virgin said yes. The band spent the next two years absolutely grinding, playing shows in LA clubs just trying to get re-signed to a new label. You might ask, well, why didn't they just stick it out with Virgin? Some bands might have. But Jacob Dylan knew there was no future for the Wallflowers with Virgin Records, and he would rather start from scratch and get it right on the next album, instead of staying with a record company that wouldn't respect his music, probably wouldn't work that hard to promote the next album, and would eventually drop them anyway. So he took his destiny into his own hands. And this decision turned out to be one of the best he ever made. If the Wallflowers would have stayed on with Virgin, bringing down the horse might not exist. Between 1992 and 1994, as the Wallflowers were playing club shows, they saw a bit of a revolving door of personnel. They kicked out their bass player, Barry McGuire, replacing him once and then again permanently with Greg Richling, another high school friend of Jacob's. They also lost drummer Peter Yanowitz, who left the Wallflowers to play drums for his girlfriend at the time, 10,000 Maniacs frontwoman Natalie Merchant. Right after Yanowitz left, the Wallflowers' plan to grind it out in clubs finally worked. They were discovered by Interscope Records and signed to the label in 1995. Things felt like they were locking into place. The songs were coming. Things were feeling right. The band immediately began work on their second studio album, Bringing Down the Horse. Before we get into the tracks, let's talk about a few production notes. As they were recording the album, yet another founding member, Toby Miller, left the band. I actually saw that Bob Dylan band name suggestion story in an interview the Franchise Times did with Miller a few months ago. He now owns a Hawaiian restaurant chain called Lemon Shark Poke. Seems random, but I feel like this kind of thing happens so much more than we realize. You might be playing guitar on a Grammy-winning album one day and happily slinging sushi the next. Being in a band is a job, and sometimes that job isn't your dream anymore. Even though Toby left mid-recording, the Wallflowers were able to complete the record with help from a number of other musicians, some of whom I'll point out when we talk through the tracks. One big game-changer for the Wallflowers was producer T-Bone Burnett agreeing to work with them on Bringing Down the Horse. Burnett played with Bob Dylan and his band in the 70s and has produced a number of popular albums. He's also received a bunch of Grammy Awards for his work on film scores, including Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Crazy Heart, Walk the Line, and Cold Mountain. The Wallflowers had sent demos to multiple producers, but Burnett was the only one that heard the potential in them. Bringing Down the Horse was recorded mostly in 1995 and the beginning part of 96, and released in May 1996. One major thing you notice about Bringing Down the Horse is that this album somehow avoids the trendy sounds of the mid-90s while also not sounding like a 60s or 70s throwback. It results in this really fresh Americana sound that you can clearly hear is influenced by a number of musicians of the past, but is still very intentionally looking forward and paving its own way. It's the exact path Jacob Dylan wanted to carve out for himself, a goal being realized after years of genuine hard work. With that, let's go through the tracks on Bringing Down the Horse, starting with the opener, One Headlight. over on Instagram I asked you guys about musical instruments you'd want to hear about and it turns out a few of you are as big of Hammond organ nerds as I am and I love you for that. The Hammond organ is an electric organ that was manufactured beginning in the 1930s and originally sold to churches as a lower cost option to the pipe organ. If you've been inside of a church you can see how massive and expensive those can get. The Hammond organ started becoming popular in jazz music in the following decades, hitting the rock scene in the 60s and 70s. a special connection with the Hammond organ is that it's a primary instrument of one of my favorite musicians of all time, the late Keith Emerson of progressive rock bands The Nice and Emerson Lake and Palmer. he definitely isn't the only one. Progressive rock as a whole really opened my eyes to the Hammond organ and the absolutely limitless possibilities of the instrument. I'll for sure be making that an upcoming episode, but for now, let's talk about the Hammond B3 in the context of bringing down the horse. The organ work on this album is masterfully done by Wallflower's keyboardist Rami Jaffe, who turned this into a defining element of the Wallflower sound. We get our first taste of it on one headlight, arguably The Wallflower's biggest hit.
1: Human long. Now it
0: we also get some slide guitar from session player John Bryan, who says he used a screwdriver he found as a slide. see throughout this album, Jacob Dylan tends to write using imagery and metaphors rather than literal meanings. One Headlight sounds like it's about a woman's death, but it's not meant to be taken literally. As Dylan puts it, One Headlight is more about the death of ideas. As you know, the Wallflowers weren't getting a ton of support from their record label from the get-go, resulting in them basically having to start over. To me, the sentiment, we can drive home with One Headlight, means we're not completely done yet. We keep getting knocked down. We keep hitting wall. We've gone until we're almost out of breath. But we still have a little light to get us home. We still have the talent and drive to make music, so we're going to keep doing that. The story arc you find in One Headlight for sure sounds like it was inspired by Bruce Springsteen, and the boss himself was a fan. Springsteen joined the band to play this song at the 1987 VMAs.
1: She said it's cold and it feels like independence day.
0: Let's talk about another huge Wallflowers hit, 6th Avenue Heartache. Six Avenue Heartache is a beautifully written song by Jacob Dylan. It was actually the first song he says he ever wrote at the age of 18. The song is about a kinship Dylan feels with a homeless musician he sees down on the sidewalk every day in New York. They both have similar hobbies, they both have finished songs to play, and though they've gotten a much different lot in life from each other, there's something that ties them together. The same black line that was drawn on you was drawn on me. Dylan looks down at that same spot where the man always sat on the sidewalk and only the guitar and the man's bag of possessions is there. The man has passed away. It's just one of those really emotional and pretty sentiments that comes out of just looking up and noticing things happening around you. The slide guitar has a pretty moment in this song played by Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Also listen for background vocals by The Counting Crow's Adam Duritz on this song
1: the worst day.
0: Let's talk about the next song, Bleeders. Once
1: upon-
0: About the struggle to make it as a successful musician. But Jacob Dylan knows he chose the path of most resistance for a reason, and he's not going to admit defeat. Instead, he's powering forward. I like how musically the choruses come in hot between the more relaxed verses. The chorus keeps driving him forward at moments that someone else might give up. is three Marlenas. Growing up and the first association I ever made with this song still somehow sticks with me today. There was a nun who taught at my school named Sister Marlena and I was terrified of her. I remember hearing this song in grade school and the thought of one, two, three Marlenas haunts me still to this day. But I've never known what the song was actually about until now. Jacob Dylan told American Songwriter in 2012, quote, my heroes were writing big, epic songs. That's what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to write anthemic, angst-ridden songs at that time in the mid-90s. That wasn't really ever my calling. I was always trying to find characters, and I did want to be epic. I thought I could get a grip on that." End quote. And I think he does a really beautiful job of that on Three Marlinas. You can't really tell if this song is about three different women, or one woman with three different personalities, and that's the magic of it. I like to think of her as one woman, but with different goals and hopes and dreams in different moments of her life. Because that's how it feels sometimes. I also like how Dylan invokes the three wise monkeys see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Another grouping of three that Marlena is trying to live her life by, but can't seem to catch a break. Three Marlena. You might recognize the melody of this song. It's very similar to Sweet Jane by the Velvet Underground.
1: CJ oh CJ oh CJ, Whoa. CJ.
0: a whole new appreciation for three marlenas the more i listened to it these last couple of weeks and all the elements that the wallflowers incorporate to make it such a modern take on americana the hammond organ the string section it's really really beautiful and it's great storytelling this wasn't one of my favorite songs on bringing down the horse before but it is now is all about people who never really grow up. I don't know that this is in reference to anyone specific for Jacob Dylan, but it's kind of like that moment you go back to your hometown or your high school reunion and see all the people you went to school with. You feel like you've changed a lot since then, but it seems like they haven't changed anything about their lives. But you wonder if they are thinking the same thing about you. It's a judgmental song that could easily be flipped on the narrator if the subject chose to.
1: The children love that come in all ages, and sometimes old men die with little boys. They say your living friends that I see you are exactly the same as you used to be.
0: Let's talk about Invisible City. is Appreciated as a younger kid, but now I can. It's really pretty. The song is Jacob Dylan coming to terms with the city of LA and the kind of people in his social circles. The city isn't invisible, but he feels like the people in it are, including himself. A reminder to live life for yourself, not to try and impress other people. And to only allow in the people who remember that too.
1: of mistakes when we held on to loosely, let open the gates Now all of these horses that you chase around In the end they are the ones that always be here alive I know it started as a fist fight
0: Wiping Out Loud is a full on Americana banger, a folksy pop rock song with clear Springsteen inspiration out the wazoo. I like this one a lot, and T Bone Burnett's wife at the time, Sam Phillips, adds a great background vocal to the chorus. Lyrically, it sounds like Dylan has been hurt and is ready to hashtag
1: cancel whoever caused it.
0: Is Josephine, which I get the sense is about a very old, broken relationship that he messed up, avoided talking about for a long time, and is now back in atoning for as an adult. There's a lot of childhood imagery in the song, signifying a simpler time, but I especially love the line in the beginning verse of the song, I know you've been sad, I know I've been bad, but if you'd let me make you ribbons from a paper bag. He realizes that all he has to give her equates to a cheap paper bag, but if he could turn it into ribbons for her, would she say that he tried? Rosephine is the song for me that sounds the most influenced by Bob Dylan. The patience and scruff in Jacob's voice and the organs in the background are what do it. It's a pretty song that, again, I didn't really like that much as a kid, but I can appreciate a little bit more now. The band also employs a lot of cool, soundscape effects to elevate the song that much more.
1: your style Maybe the very first You're so to me, You're so sweet, must taste just
0: Let's talk about God, Don't Make Lonely Girl. song. The modern honky tonk line dance and sound isn't really for me, and I kind of wrestle with how I feel about these lyrics. It creeps me out a little bit, though I do love the irony in Jacob Dylan's storytelling. The narrator has a crush on a stripper who is dancing for him behind a glass wall, and in his mind, he molds her into this fantasy woman who doesn't want to be there stripping and needs protecting and saving, and what luck, he's the perfect man for her. He'll happily take her home and dress her up and take her out on the town and be her boyfriend so she doesn't have to strip anymore. It's like a fairy tale. First off, I definitely don't get the sense that Jacob Dylan is writing about himself here. Clearly, Dylan has created this character who believes he's this knight in shining armor. The song is dripping in sarcasm, which is always really fun. But the reason I say I wrestle with how I feel about these lyrics and why it creeps me out is that if the point of this song is missed by the listener, Undue merit may be given to the idea that women who willingly strip for a living are broken, don't know their worth, are too pretty or too smart to strip, and need to be saved. And that's not always true. I wish I could find an interview or something where Jacob Dylan explains that this song isn't supposed to be earnest or serious. I definitely think that's the case, but some people really do think this way, and to me, it's not supposed to be a romantic or cute song. It's a story about a moment in time in LA and follows in that same theme as an invisible city. We're all surrounded by a million people, yet so alone. The title of this song is of note too God Don't Make Lonely Girls. But I don't think she's the lonely one in that back room with the glass wall. The highway again with the second to last song on Bringing Down the Horse, Angel on My Bike. This one's a nice little poppy toe tapper that has all the classic makings of a wallflower song thumping beat and a fun moment for accomplished guest drummer Matt Chamberlain, acoustic drums rounded out by little pops of electric, and of course, that perfectly tasteful Hammond organ. The narrator, who could be Dylan himself this time, is out on the road again, exploring all that life has to offer him. Whether this is about a literal representation of a solo road trip, or it's more used as a metaphor to describe how quickly one can be faced with fame, Dylan knows he's moving at a really fast speed and needs to know someone or something has his back along the way. I wish I felt nothing the beautiful pedal steel guitar on this song is contributed by the late Nashville legend Leo LeBlanc and the song has a pretty country vibe that is a clear nod to him LeBlanc worked as a session musician in Muscle Shoals, Memphis, and Hollywood, and worked with artists including John Prine, Carole King, Aretha Franklin, Merle Haggard, and so many more. LeBlanc embodied the spirit of just playing music for the fun of it when it came to helping out with the Wallflowers. Before this album even existed, he would sometimes play clubs with the Wallflowers and insisted they not pay him a dime, just enjoy a six-pack of beer with him and help chip in for his bus fare. He was blind and would take his pedal steel on the bus with him. This guy was a complete stud and so well loved. LeBlanc was extremely sick with cancer when he recorded I Wish I Felt Nothing with the Wallflowers and passed away shortly after they completed the album. It was his last recorded contribution to the music world. Jacob Dylan subsequently dedicated Bringing Down the Horse to LeBlanc. Following the release of Bringing Down the Horse, the Wallflowers toured very extensively to promote it. 1996 saw slow sales at first, but once MTV and radio stations got a hold of Sixth Avenue Heartache, it didn't take long for the Wallflowers to be huge stars. They were the featured musical guest on Saturday Night Live later that year, and by the end of 1996, the album had been certified gold but 1997 was really the year of the wallflower. As in January, the band was nominated for two Grammy Awards for 6th Avenue Heartache. They opened for Sheryl Crow on tour before a string of solo headlining shows. They released one headlight as a single in February, and the album was certified platinum by March and double platinum by April 1997. In June, Jacob Dylan was on the cover of Rolling Stone with a massive feature story, and the album went triple platinum in the same month. In July 1997, the Wallflowers embarked on a co-headlining tour with Counting Crows. By October, the album was certified quadruple platinum, and by the beginning of 1998, the Wallflowers had received three more Grammy nominations and won two of them, Best Rock Song for One Headlight and Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group. Bringing Down the Horse remains the Wallflowers' highest-selling album to date. After the initial excitement around bringing down the horse, by the end of 1998, the Wallflowers had begun to decline again on the charts. But they came back into the discussion again in a big way when their cover of David Bowie's Heroes was chosen as the lead single off the 1998 Godzilla soundtrack. No, nothing,
1: nothing will keep us together.
0: The Wallflowers went on to release three additional consecutive albums. First was 2000's Breach. Breach got pretty decent reviews from critics and peaked at number 13 on the Billboard charts. But despite good reviews, Breach came nowhere near the sales success of Bringing Down the Horse. That was partially due to a massive file-sharing leak of the album in its entirety on Napster. At that time, early 2000s, Napster had become such a massive problem for musicians because a reported 25 million users had the ability to listen and download albums on the site. It had a huge impact on sales for Breach and a lot of other records that came out around that same time. After that came Red Letter Days in two thousand two and Rebel Sweetheart in
1: two thousand five. It's going to make you cry, it's going to make you kneel before it breaks you from inside. Pressing on, on over
0: on. The band went on hiatus in 2006. During which time, Jacob Dylan and T Bone Burnett toured together, and Jacob released two solo studio albums. Keyboardist Rami Jaffe also joined the Foo Fighters as a touring member and session player. The hiatus lasted until 2012, when the Wallflowers got back together to record their sixth studio album, Glad All Over, at the Black Keys' Dan Auerbach Studio in Nashville.
1: You're gonna break somebody's heart, that's true, someone's gonna break yours too.
0: Of the the after a tour opening for Eric Clapton in 2013, and a solo headlining tour after that, the remaining members of the Wallflowers slowly but amicably stepped away one at a time to focus on other interests in bands. Except for Jacob Dylan, He still tours today as the Wallflowers with a solid cast of touring members, and he was also heavily involved in a brand new documentary that just released, called Echo in the Canyon. It's a study of the music scene coming out of LA's Laurel Canyon in the 60s. It just debuted, so I haven't seen it yet, but I can't wait to watch it. For the soundtrack, Dylan joined up with Regina Spector to record a cover of Love's 1966 classic, No Matter What You Do. Let's close it out with this. Do you
1: me? I'm the one you talk about Do you remember me?
0: much for joining me today next week we are diving into an album i absolutely love it's intensely personal a little unpolished but so beautiful
1: Hi recommend getting your heart jammed up
0: covering Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. This is one of the best-selling albums of all time, one that everyone on this planet, no matter who you are, can relate to in some way. Give Jagged Little Pill a listen this week, and I'll see you back here next Tuesday.